Well, good morning. I'm glad to be up here and to share the word this morning. Uh, it's been a few weeks, and so I've had a little time to rest and recover from uh, the time of, of doing a lot of what Cody's been doing. Um, and so I'm grateful for the, for the break, and I'm grateful to be back up here and to be able to, to bring the message this morning. We're continuing our series in Ephesians. Today we're going to be in Ephesians 1, focused, focusing on verses 20 to 23. So there's an English idiom that goes something like this, absolute power corrupts absolutely. It is demonstrated as true over and over in all of world history. The more power that an empirical leader has, the more likely they are to use it for evil. The more power someone has, the more they believe they should be able to do. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis describes this in his book, The Magician's Nephew. The two main characters, Diggory Kirk and Polly Plummer, find themselves in an encounter with the evil white witch, Queen Jadis. Now, it is this Queen Jadis who believes that it's a queen's right to do whatever it takes to protect themselves. And it is, it is her prerogative to do whatever seems right in her own eyes. And often this is what power does. It distorts our thinking and clouds our judgment in what is right and wrong. In The Magician's Nephew, Queen Jadis is willing to kill all of her subjects in order to maintain her power and protect herself. What Lewis portrays in the Narnia series is not only true in fantasy, it's also true in real life. It often means that political leaders will enslaved, enslave conquered people or enslave their own people as a way of maintaining power and authority. And so for those of us who don't have that kind of authority, we're often taught to be wary of those in power, because more often than not, absolute power corrupts absolutely. What we're going to see today is that absolute power corrupting absolutely is a mankind problem, but for the one who created the cosmos, absolute power is an opportunity to demonstrate grace and love. Like I said, today we're looking at Ephesians 1, 20 to 23 as our main text, and we'll pull up some other passages as well, so have your Bible quiz hats on, ready to go. Um, it may be helpful to recall that um, the letters that we have in the Bible, written by Paul and Peter, John, James, and the author to the Hebrews, they're written to real people in real places at a real time in history. And the overarching purpose of each of the letters is to help the readers understand and apply both the Old Testament teachings and the teachings of Jesus in their own context. So before we read today's passage, we're going to recap a little bit of what has come before. The previous 19 verses over the past four or five weeks that we've looked at it so far have been both doxology and thanksgiving. It starts with praise to the Father as the initiator of the blessings we have through Jesus as we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And at that point, Paul makes his turn toward thanksgiving, which Cody uh, shared with us last week. Now, as is typical of Paul's letters, he laces his introduction with themes that he's going to expand on throughout the rest of his letters. So we shouldn't be surprised when in the coming weeks we're going to see how Paul develops the themes of God's initiating work in our salvation in chapter 2, where God's wisdom and, re and revelation of the mystery that is revealed to the world in chapter 3, or the power that God demonstrates 
uh, as, as we live lives worthy of the gospel in chapters 4 through 6. At the end of what we read last week, Paul began talking about power in verse 19. He's praying that our eyes would be open to what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. The power that we're going to be talking about today is God demonstrating the power toward us. We are the recipients of the power, or to put it another way, the power is at work in us. Paul wants his readers to understand that the power that is in work in them to bring about the change in their lives that he's writing to them about is a power far beyond their comprehension. It's far beyond any problem that is set before them, any conflict they are having, any persecution they are experiencing, and any sanctification that they are still awaiting. God's power is bigger than any excuse or reason that they may have. God is interested in changing the lives of people so that they can fulfill his purposes. And he's the one who is able to give power to do it. And so for Paul, it's important to remind the Ephesians what that power is that will help them live out the good works that God has prepared for us and for them to do. So the main idea today is the riches of God's power are expressed most powerfully in Jesus as king over all creation and demonstrated most visibly in Christ as head of the church. Let me say that one more time. The riches of God's power are expressed most powerfully in Jesus as king over all creation and demonstrated most visibly in Christ as the head of the church. So let's read together Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 23, reading out of the CSB. It reads this way. It says, He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The first way that Paul describes God's power is in the fact that he raised Christ from the dead. God's power is demonstrated in Christ's resurrection. This is something that Paul and the apostles think is one of the most important things to proclaim. Several years ago, I took a look at the book of Acts and compared all of the various stories with what we would call gospel presentations, uh, specifically to non-believers. The result was that I found eight gospel presentations that included content. So I'm not including things where uh, Luke would record, hey, they proclaimed the gospel and this many people turned to faith. What I was interested in is what the content of those gospel pro proclamations were. And so we find that there are, uh, there are eight, or I found that were, there were eight gospel presentations that were uh, recorded in Acts, and they are in Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, 7, 10, 13, and 17. Acts 4 and 7 are unique in that they are directed specifically at the religious leaders uh, who were aware of the claim that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and the resurrection is not included in either of those, uh, in either of those proclamations. Uh, but what I did discover is that there are three points, three common points within the other six. What we have is, uh, sorry, where did it go? 
technology. What happens? So, sorry, within, within the eight, we have these, these uh, themes that, throw up, that come together. Jesus is rejected by religious leaders, killed by man unjustly. God raised Jesus from the dead. We must respond. It was God's plan for him to die. And the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sin, they're all part of these gospel presentations. And if you take out Acts 4 and 7, the three themes that show up are Jesus is raised from the dead, there's a call to respond, and there's a promise of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins. Paul picked this up in his ministry and vigorously defended the resurrection as foundational for our way of life as followers of Jesus, probably most notably in 1 Corinthians 15. In that defense, he concludes in verses 16 to 19, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in, in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. So instead for Paul, the resurrection is the guarantee of our future resurrection and the receipt of God's promises. Here in Ephesians, it is the first demonstration of God's power that he notes is for us or toward us who are in Christ. Paul is priming the pump, as it were, about the power that is demonstrated in the church, both in the individuals and the body that's going to be explored in the rest of the, of the letter. Without the resurrection of the, as the sure example of God's power, whatever else that Paul describes as ours in Christ is hollow and empty. In Paul's mind, without the resurrection, anything else that he proclaims is emptiness and hollow. Without the resurrection, any following of Jesus is silliness. And so Paul places it as the primary expression of God's power, the reminder of what God's power is capable of. So secondly, God's power is demonstrated in Christ's exaltation. In the back half of verse 20, Ephesians 1 verse 20, uh, he says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavens. Now, for those of us who have been in church for any length of time, the idea of Christ being seated at the right hand of God is a very normal way of talking about Jesus' exaltation in heaven. The reason for that is because it is the one of the most common uh, idioms to describe Jesus after his resurrection. And in, and in Psalm 110, verse 1, which is quoted here, seating him at his right hand, we have the most often quoted passage of Old Testament that is applied to Jesus. It is applied more often than any prophecy from Jeremiah or Ezekiel, or even more often than the prophecies of the Isaiah servant song in chapter 53. This is the typical way to talk about Jesus in his exaltation. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Speaking of sitting at one's right hand is to speak of having a person sit at the seat of honor. It would be a high honor to sit at the right hand of any ruler or leader. In the Old Testament, we get a couple of pictures of this. Joseph is a picture of this when he is sat as second only to Pharaoh. 
And he has spoken, he speaks of himself as father to Pharaoh. Later on, we see Mordecai displace Haman as the right hand of Ahasuerus. Paul is saying that following his resurrection, Jesus sat at the place of honor with God. It's similar to the English idiom, right-hand man. A right-hand man is one of the most trusted advisors of a leader, the one most leaned upon to accomplish a difficult task under the authority of the leader. In our passage, Paul melds Psalm 110 with an allusion to Daniel 7. Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. The picture of the Son of Man figure is one to whom God gives authority over all creation. In the Jewish mind, the Son of Man character is equal with God. The logic goes like this, God is ruler of the cosmos, and only he can rule. Whoever receives the authority to rule all of the cosmos must be God. Therefore, the Son of Man must be equal to God. In the poetic image of Daniel 7, the Son of Man is given authority. But what we know about Jesus from the rest of the New Testament scriptures is that the authority was always his in the first place. He is is always affirmed as the creator of all things. The receipt of authority that we see in Daniel 7 is symbolic in the sense that it becomes recognized by everyone else in creation. And so the picture that the Jews were expecting of their coming Messiah was one of a political leader in the image of David. And if you go back and read the context of Psalm 110 and even Daniel 7, the language of both passages really looks like a political leader who is going to physically stomp the enemies of Israel. Yet, Jesus' kingdom was an upside-down kingdom. They were expecting a conquering king who would overthrow the Romans. Instead, Jesus proclaiming a kingdom that was already here. He wasn't going to destroy the enemies of the Jews. Instead, he taught loving your enemies. He didn't believe in using violence as a tool for gaining power, he believed in sacrificial love. He associated with the poor, the hungry, the weak, the sick, tax collectors, prostitutes, and the outcasts. He invited them into his kingdom and blessed them. His kingdom was so different, and his understanding of what it meant to be king was so different that the religious leaders of the day didn't get it. But when Jesus is at trial, he's asked whether he's the Messiah or not. And I want you to pay attention to how Mark records Jesus' response. Mark 14, verses 61 to 64, says this, But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. At that point, they understood Jesus' claim. Jesus' claim was that he was equal with God and the one to whom the entire cosmos owes allegiance. They understood exactly what he meant, and because they didn't believe him, they wanted him to die for blasphemy. The irony is that in killing him, they set him up 
to show the vast power that was in his nature. He was resurrected and exalted to God's right hand, just as he claimed. So according to Paul, God's power is first demonstrated in Christ's resurrection. Secondly, God's power is demonstrated in Christ's exaltation. And thirdly, God's power is demonstrated in Christ's dominion. Christ's dominion is universal in scope, but there is a particular way that it is demonstrated on earth. Verses 21 to 23 read this, Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So first, Christ's dominion or authority is universal. The Greek in this list has cosmic implications. The rulers and authorities is a a way to talk about the human actors of government. They're the people who run the cities and governments that we live in. The powers and dominions often signify a class of spiritual beings that are sometimes called thrones or elemental powers. Paul is talking about anyone that could be in charge of anything in any realm. They're all subject to Jesus. I know that seems kind of strange for us, the idea of spiritual beings in the heavens kind of playing with what's going on around us. But in the Middle East, ancient Middle Eastern thought, it was common to refer to the human authorities as extensions or the human representatives of a cosmic authority. For example, Pharaoh was the human representative of Ra. Um, the same was true of the Canaanite gods of Asherah, Baal, and Dagon. And we see Daniel talk about this in Daniel 10, in a vision, an angel comes to Daniel and describes that he had been sent by God to Daniel, but he was detained or opposed by the prince of Persia. And it wasn't until he had help from another angel that he could get away and get to Daniel. So in other words, the worldview of ancient readers had space for spiritual powers being the actual ruling authority over cities and empires. So when Paul says that Jesus sat down at God's right hand in heaven, far above the rulers and authorities, powers and dominions, he's saying that Jesus has authority over all leaders, human or spiritual. No other being, spiritual or physical, has more authority than Jesus. Paul talks about this authority being in this age or the age to come. Within Judaism, time was generally divided into two ages, the current one, when God's rule is not fully manifest, and the coming one, when God will reveal his sovereign rule as king. Christ's death and resurrection and exaltation enable believers to live under God's rule in this age, a time in between. And so while we don't see all things subjected under Jesus' feet in a practical way right now, Jesus has already taken that role, and it seems that we will see the completion of that at his return. Paul is aware of this, and his next phrase lets the readers know where Jesus' power and authority lies in this age. Christ's dominion is universal, but it is demonstrated right now in the church. He says that God appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of all things in every way. In turning attention to the church, he is signaling The fact that Jesus' authority, or his headship over the church, is the way that his rule is demonstrated in the world today. 
Several years ago, there was an incident at an IHOP in Fort Myers, Florida. Early in the morning, there was a group of unruly patrons. Uh, They began to do things that made the employees fear for their lives. So they called the police, and some officers responded to the situation. Initially, the officers were unable to control the situation. Then there was a sergeant who strolled in, and he said, Get down! Everyone, get down now! Within seconds, all the offenders were on their faces on the floor. He gained control, total control of the situation. People who study law enforcement and the military will call this command presence. Command presence communicates to everyone present that you are in complete control of the situation. That space is now yours. The church is Christ's command presence to the world around us. It is a reminder to the world that Jesus is the authority over all things. With Christ as the head of the church, The body moves in response and accomplishes the tasks he sets before them. Paul is going to spend plenty of time in this letter expanding on the various ways that this will take place. But very specifically, Paul is interested in the unity of the church and what the unity of the church expresses to the world around us. When the church is unified in love and action, the world is startled by that. It's startled by the fact that barriers that typically separate us from one another are torn down. That genuine love is expressed for people of different backgrounds, socioeconomic locations, and other ethnic barriers. It's a reminder that the love that seeks the benefit of the other will break down the barriers that we've erected to protect ourselves. Christ's command presence is evidence to the people around us that Christ does have all authority. Secondly, the unity of the church is a demonstration to the spiritual beings that God's power is above all others. Ephesians 3.10 tells us that the church is the way that God demonstrates his power and wisdom to the rulers and authorities of heaven. The church on earth is Jesus' command presence to the cosmos and spiritual rulers too. And so we're pointed back to a different type of kingdom. The kingdoms of this world use fear and intimidation to maintain control. There is self-preservation at the root of all of this. Our natural bent is to protect ourselves by any means necessary. The kingdoms around us use the same techniques, just at scale. We often use violence or threat of violence to protect ourselves. We hoard resources. We dehumanize people so that it's easier to take the stand that we have. If there is an other, they become competitors for resources. Their inclusion is a risk to our self-preservation. The kingdom of Jesus is one that is marked by love, that cares for the other. Jesus' kingdom shows radical generosity, knowing that our fathers know what we need even before we ask. Jesus' kingdom sets aside violent revenge and instead turns the other cheek. It goes the extra mile and is generous to those who oppress or act unjustly to us. The kingdom of God and those in it act as their king did. 
When we do this, we demonstrate not just to the people around us, but also to the spiritual beings in the heavens that Jesus' authority is above all others. So we've talked about Jesus' power demonstrated in his resurrection and his exaltation and and his dominion or his authority, and that's really good information. I think there's some really neat stuff that we can learn from Paul to fill our brains. It can can provide confidence in our faith, hope for the future, but what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for us that God's power is toward us or for us today? We want our knowledge about God to become knowledge of God, our knowledge to be informed by experience so that our knowing is confirmed by experience. So we want to move from the knowledge about to the knowledge of. So how do we do that? Well, first, I want to make sure that we recognize that if Jesus is the one who has all authority, then he has authority over our lives. And so that could mean a couple of different things. First, it could be that you haven't even recognized Jesus' authority over your life. You continue to live as someone who rules their own kingdom. As Queen Jadis demonstrated, you think that whatever you do is good as long as it is good in your eyes. It doesn't matter if it hurts others. It doesn't matter if it's wrong. I'm going to protect myself. And so you could be like Queen Jadis and think, I can, I can do what I want. I am my own king. The Bible shows us very clearly through Jesus' death and resurrection that he is king. So our first response ought to be to submit to that king. Recognizing I am not in charge of my own destiny. I cannot do for myself anything other than what God does for me. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your life of, of, uh, of, of thinking that you are better, thinking that others are lesser, thinking that I have to do what I can do to preserve myself. Turn away from that and submit to Jesus' authority. If he is king over all creation, that means he is also king over your life. Fortunately, we have a king who is generous and abundant, and he will take care of your needs such that this idea of self-preservation is unnecessary. God is going to provide. God is going to walk you through the struggle you face, the violence that you may experience, in such a way that he will meet you there and see you through. In doing that, you get a chance to be a part of the church, giving glory to the Father, demonstrating God's power. When you act differently because you have submitted your life to Christ, you are a picture of Christ to the world. So we can reorient our lives by reorienting our allegiance to Jesus. When your allegiance is to him, you do things his way. Another way we can can apply this is 
by recognizing that the power that is toward us comes from a particular way of life. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live a particular way of life. And this is most notably clear in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you saturate yourself with Jesus, you saturate yourself in his ways, you saturate your mind with the Sermon on the Mount and the the kingdom ethic that Jesus gives, you will soon see that you have power to live that way. It won't seem so foreign as the Holy Spirit transforms your mind as you renew it in the Scriptures, as you renew it in the way that Jesus describes is the right way to live. We can also live a life from a perspective of abundance instead of scarcity. See, one of the the things about self-preservation is it looks at all the things that are around us and says there's not enough. There's not enough. And so I've got to protect what's mine. God is a God of abundance. God gives life that is abundant. That abundant life starts now. It's not something that we have to wait for after we die. That abundant life starts now. As we experience life in partnership with the Holy Spirit, as we experience community that is built up around Jesus, then all of a sudden we can see communities that look like Acts 2 and Acts 4, where when there are people who don't have, the people that do have give up what they have, because God has provided abundantly. And so we get to demonstrate God's abundance to one another and demonstrate God's love to the world around us. I'd also say that we can take this this knowledge of God's power and apply it to our lives by taking the opportunity to experience discipleship from someone who is ahead of you on the journey. As As you watch the lives of people who have experienced God's power and you begin to imitate their walk, just like Paul says to his readers, imitate me as I imitate Christ, this is an opportunity for us to become more like Christ. The Holy Spirit works within us, empowers us to walk like Christ when we have models. Because the church is not an individual sport. You need others. You need others to experience the abundance that God has. You need others to experience the power that God has working in us, the body of Christ. And so it's important that we are attached to those who are more experienced than us in the Christian walk that may have answers to the questions that we're about to go through. That that have experienced suffering in ways that we have not. And has seen God's power through hard times. Lastly, I think we can experience God's power when we work toward unity in mission with other believers. We do that by exercising spiritual gifts so that the power that is working within us can also be expressed through us as Christ's presence is made manifest when we work in his authority and in his name. 
Again, there's an inward and an outward dimension to this. As we work together, as we unify through the power of the Spirit, we experience God's abundant life and abundant love for us within the community, and it bleeds out into the world around us. We get to experience God's power as a body, and God's power is demonstrated to the world around us. So I want to encourage you this morning, God's power is toward you, because God has raised Jesus from the dead. He is seated in the heavens at the right hand of the Father, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, and he is the head over everything, including the church. May we be people who live under his authority and see his power work through us that we may demonstrate the goodness and love of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we praise you for the great power that you have. With that power, you not only created the heavens and the earth, you separated light from darkness, you filled the cosmos, you filled the earth with beings, all to point us to you. Your great power wasn't thwarted by our sin. Your great power wasn't thwarted by Jesus' death. but it was an opportunity to demonstrate your power. And so we praise you for the resurrection of Jesus, who is the King over all things. We thank you that by his death we have forgiveness of sins, and we have been ransomed from death. We have been bought back. We can be your people. Lord, we thank you that you have made it possible that the Holy Spirit would bind us together in unity for our own good and for the good of the rest of the world, because you desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, Lord, we come before you and we proclaim that we have missed the mark. That we don't always have your mission, your will in mind when we make decisions. Lord, forgive us when we act in self-preservation, when we act as if we know best, when we act as if it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks or how anyone else will be affected. Lord, I pray that we would come to experience your love in such a way that we trust how you lead us. We trust that you are an abundant God who will provide that you are the one who knows everything we need before we ask. That you are the one who cares for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. But you care so much more for us. Lord, may we experience your power within us as we love one another. Serving one another. Giving up our lives for one another just as Jesus did for us. May we experience your power in suffering. May we experience your power in joy. May we experience your power when there is conflict. May we experience your power as we just wake up in the morning and go outside. 
Lord, we thank you that you are with us. Help us to pay attention to you. That we may love you better and see even more of your power as we pay attention to what you're doing around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.